you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series, one episode at a time. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows, such as Black Mirror and the Jordan Peele-produced Twilight Zone reboot in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Tweet me at ovanthologypod or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the show, I'll be discussing The Silence. It's the 25th episode of The Twilight Zone's second season, and it originally aired on April 28, 1961. And I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater's uh, Season 1, Episode 7, The Brain of, J- of John Emerson. Um, and before I get to all that, I just have some housekeeping I gotta do. So, first of all, uh, speaking of science fiction theater, uh, the DVD order that, because I have the complete series on DVD. And the DVD order is different from the air date order, apparently. So I'm just going to go by IMDb's air date uh, order going forward. So that is what I'm planning on doing uh, going forward. I know last time on the podcast, I think I mentioned a different episode that I was going to review. But anyway, the link to link is in the show notes for the episode that I'm reviewing this week. Um, and then my only other... Um, feedback and everything is that Matt from uh, You're Gonna Love This or Not podcast. Uh, he tweeted me regarding the Rip Van Winkle caper. Also, uh, I'm uh, recording this. Well, it's now it's one thirty, but um, I'm recording it the night after his birthday. Um, so his birthday was just yesterday. So happy birthday, Matt. And uh, yeah, so he tweeted me about the Rip Van Winkle caper. He said, I'm pretty sure developing suspended animation tech that is hardened enough to last uh, for a hundred years in a remote desert cave would be worth way more than a million dollars, even in, even in 1961 money. And uh, I agree. <laughs> and we had, we had a fun little back and forth um, about that. Uh, so yeah, anyway, check out his podcast. You're going to love this or not. Uh, really fun podcast. Uh, they release monthly. I was on the episode uh, reviewing uh, Short Circuit 2. And it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. So that's the housekeeping I have to attend to. So let's just dive right in. So I'm going to go ahead and do a plot summary, courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Of course, this uh, plot summary is going to be 100% spoiler heavy. Um, so we're I'm going to be spoiling the episode from this moment forward. So if you haven't seen The Silence, go check it out on any streaming platform, DVD, Blu-ray, what have you, um, and then come back and listen to my review. Um, and just fair warning, my or just so you know, um, my review of science fiction theater will be spoiler free, so no worries there. So, plot summary courtesy of Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. Jamie Tennyson, a young man with a reputation for squandering his vocal box amongst the members of a club, has become the object of Colonel Taylor's annoyance. 
In an effort to get some peace and quiet, Taylor wages half a million dollars that Tennyson cannot go a full year without saying a single word. The wager carries a stipulation. Mr. Tennyson will be placed in a glass room so he can be observed at all times. Tennyson accepts the bet, much to Taylor's pleasure. As the months pass, Tennyson manages to retain his stature. In desperation, Taylor suggests innuendos about the young man's wife, but Tennyson remains silent. One year later, gossip of Taylor's cruel attempts have spread uh, spread about the club, proving Taylor is the weaker of the two. The damage forces Taylor into an embarrassing confession. He lost most of his money years ago. He is nothing but a fake in disguise. Naturally, he'll resign from the club, but Tennyson, angry for committing to such a bet, explains in writing that to ensure his winning, he had the nerves of his vocal cords severed. The Silence uh, stars Frenchot Tone as Colonel Archie Taylor. Uh, this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, and that's such a shame because he's fantastic in this episode. Um, he did appear in an episode of Pursuit in 1958 that was written by Serling, uh, titled The Last Night in August. Um, I haven't tried to look to see if that's available anywhere. I'm going to guess it's not, though, because those uh, I-, I feel like that's probably not available anywhere. Uh, French Hot Tone was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor in a Leading Role for 1935's Mutiny on the Bounty. On the Bounty. <laughs> uh, and he also has a star in the uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame. And he appeared in two episodes of Tales of Tomorrow back in 1952. Co-starring as Jamie Tennyson is Liam Sullivan. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. Next is the season three, I think it's the finale, The Changing of the Guard. Um, he was also in one episode of Star Trek, the original series, in Plato's Stepchildren, and one episode of Lost in Space. And appearing as Franklin is Cyril Delavanti. This is his second of four Twilight Zones. Previous, previously, we saw him in Penny for Your Thoughts. And next we'll see of him is in Season 3, A Piano in the House. He was also in an episode of Night Gallery in 1972 in a segment called The Sins of the Fathers. And he appeared in four episodes of science fiction theater, as well as one episode of One Step Beyond in 1960 titled The Haunting. And finally, he also appeared in the movie Soylent Green. So he's had, he had quite, um, quite a lot of kind of science fiction, uh, credits to his name. And rounding out the cast is Jonathan Harris as George Alfred. Uh, this is his second of two Twilight Zone uh, appearances. We previously saw him in 22 as the Doctor, and he was also in an episode of Night Gallery in 1971 in the in the segment titled "Since Aunt Ada Came to Stay." Uh, writer for this episode was Rod Serling, and director was Boris Sagal. This is his first of two Twilight Zones. The next we'll see of him is in Season 3, The Arrival, which is an episode I'm really looking forward to. Um, He was also the director of a segment in the 1969 Night Gallery TV movie, which I think may have been a feature-length pilot. I I couldn't really figure out uh, its placement there. Um, So I don't know if it was just a feature-length pilot and then the the series, uh, it went to series, or if that was a different Night Gallery thing that Serling did, kind of like the time element. I don't know. I'll research some more and try to, you know, follow uh, follow up on that. 
So the silence. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go into my review. First, I'm going to talk about what I knew before going in, since the whole point of this podcast is that I'm watching this for the first time. So what I knew before watching The Silence for the first time was that it was about a man named Tennyson taking a bet that he can remain silent for a year. That's all I knew. Um, and I and I wasn't sure what the Twilight Zone element would be or what the moral of the story would be. So I went in there, I went into the episode pretty blind. And let's just go into my review. Okay, so right off the bat, the setting of this episode reminded me a lot of back there. Kind of the same kind of high society, kind of gentleman club kind of group thing. Um, exclusive club, really. Kind of stuffy setting, I guess. Um, and it's interesting because I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but, well, a lot bit here, but like toward the end of the episode, there's a shot that, um, I think it's after Alfred says something. Right before Tennyson comes up um, from downstairs, and there's a shot of the group of men sitting at a table that, like, the setting looks a lot like back there, and then also like the man, one of the men, one of the men sitting at the table, uh, looks like the actor who, like, it's a vague similarity. I don't think he's the same actor, but like he looks similar to uh, the guy from back there. So I don't know. Anyway, that's whatever. <laughs> um, so. The the setting of this episode and the characters and everything, it got, kind of got me wondering a little bit if the show's audience ever struggled with relating to the characters when the episode was originally airing. Um, because these men seem to be of a much higher class than what I imagine to be the majority of the show's audience. Um, I kind of thought that and then, and then that thought kind of went out of my head. Um, cause I just feel like it probably wasn't an issue because the character arcs aren't tied to their status in society. Like the, and even, I would even say the themes and the morals of this episode are, while, while they are kind of tied to the status of the men within their social circles, um, it's still not contingent on like an understanding of that of that setting. Uh, the twilight zone is about ordinary people and even these men who are of a uh, higher status, I guess. I don't know. Um, in society, uh, they're still like the, their base behavior is still relatable. Um, so at the, at the outside of this episode, we get Liam Sullivan, uh, playing tennis and he's doing a great job. He does this monologue that must have been really challenging to master. Um, and it's funny cause like in trivia, um, Serling was writing extra pages for him on set, uh, because he was doing so well at, at memorizing it. There's an anecdote in unlocking the door to a television classic where Liam Sullivan says that he was doing the monologue and Serling came up to him and said that, uh, and asked him if, if, he could memorize another page or two um, if he wrote it. And so he said, yeah, sure. And Serling went to a corner, scribbled out a couple of pages and handed them, handed them to uh, Sullivan and Sullivan, Sullivan memorized them. And like, it comes through clear, like his reciting of um, his reciting of the monologue is really great. Like it's a sort of rapid fire approach, but Sullivan is delivering the lines with a lot of like facial gesticulating, gesticulating gesticulating <laughs> facial gesticulating um i don't even know is that a thing um it's 145 now <laughs> um uh anyway that signals to us that he knows he's a blowhard and is just ramping up to asking for money and it's a it's a performance for tennyson in the in performing that uh, this is going to get really confusing so okay 
so Tennyson, the character, is putting on a performance that's leading him to asking people in the club for money. Um, and in performing it that way, Sullivan had a lot of stuff to carry on on his performance. Um, like, how do you perform a scene? Like, I'm not an actor or anything. I'm very far from being an actor. But how do you... It boggles my mind to think that uh, someone could perform a scene in which the character is performing for an audience that he wants to believe he is sincere. Like, he wants the audience to believe he's sincere, but he's putting on a performance um, on top of that. And then also just on the broader level, Liam Sullivan is an actor putting on a performance for us. So it's just – it's – it's really uh, hard to uh, – it's really impressive to me, I should say. And so we get the effect of Tennyson's voice grating on Archie's nerves. And throughout the whole scene, like, Tennyson hasn't stopped talking. And there's a close-up of, tennis, uh, a close-up of Archie's ear as the sound effect is kind of distorting Tennyson's voice. Um, it's a really great effect because it's a very huge close-up of, of Archie's ear. And the distortion is – is really effective. And it's interesting because the episode doesn't go anywhere supernatural. So this close-up of Archie's ear and the distorted voice is kind of the closest thing we get to a heightened reality in this episode. And it works really well. So Archie meets with Alfred and it's revealed that Archie is going to propose a wager. Uh, Archie tells Alfred that Tennyson is so transparent. Like he says the line, the only thing worse than his talking so much is his transparency. And like I, I don't know French, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Frenchote, uh, Frenchot, Frenchote, Tone's voice is just magnetic in this episode. Like he, he is really great in this role. So, uh, and I'll get to more of that later. So he confirms with Alfred that the wager is within the bounds of the law, and that's when the the Twilight music or Twilight Zone music kicks in. And I was like, at that moment, I was reminded that we were in the Twilight Zone, <laughs> that this was a an episode of the Twilight Zone. Like first viewing, I didn't. I didn't know that there was that there wasn't any supernatural element to the episode. So when I heard the music, it kind of caused me to reorient myself to the fact that I was watching The Twilight Zone. Like obviously, I didn't put on the show and was like, "Oh, oh, I forgot that I was watching The Twilight Zone." But since there's no Twilight Zone element introduced, the music kind of made me briefly wonder if I had missed something in that opening scene, something that would have signaled to me what the what the kind of catch would be. But there was no catch, and I had paid close enough attention, so yay me. Um, So we get Serling's opening narration, which I'm going to go ahead and play right here. The note that this man is carrying across a club room is in the form of a proposed wager, but it's the kind of wager that comes without precedent. It stands alone in the annals of bet-making as the strangest game of chance ever offered by one man to another. In just a moment, we'll see the terms of the wager and what young Mr. Tennyson does about it. And in the process, we'll witness all parties spin a wheel of chance in a very bizarre casino called the Twilight Zone. So he says that uh, he said that the, it's the strangest game of 
chance ever offered by one man to another. He makes some uh, comparisons to gambling and everything. And I do want to point out, I, I like I couldn't find anything in trivia that would like uh, corroborate this or or shed light on this. But Serling's voice in this narration sounds a little different. Um, I couldn't really pinpoint it, but it sounds like he's either like when he recorded that, uh, kind of sounds like he was either exhausted or maybe under the weather or something, but it's a distinctively like a distinctive, distinctively more uh, gravelly voice. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, they, they hand the note to Franklin who hands it to Tennyson, uh, just as Tennyson is reaching the crescendo of his performance and talking about what he could do with a quarter of a million dollars. And I just, man, Serling's writing in this episode is really phenomenal. Like the writing is so sharp. Archie telling Alfred that Tennyson asked him for a loan last week, set us up for the meaning behind Tennyson's monologue without having to show us it through Tennyson's actions. Like that is incredibly sharp writing. Like it's just, it conveys so much information in these opening moments of this episode and it's just economized or it's a, it's economic, I guess. Economic storytelling is something I've talked about a lot um, throughout this entire podcast. But um, it's just, it's, it's great. It's just so, it's so clear and uh, concise. And it also gives a stronger background for some of Archie's disdain for Tennyson because it's just, it's, it's communicating to communicating to us that Tennyson is kind of. I don't know if I would, I, I still, after seeing this episode so many times, I don't know if I would say that he's a con artist in any sense, but like he's someone who is not afraid to ask for a small fortune, uh, that turns out to just support his wife and her, uh, her, uh, expensive tastes. Um, so yeah, so anyway, I can't imagine anyone knocking points off of this episode for its lack of science fiction or fantasy elements, because the moment that Tennyson reads the note, uh, the episode itself hits a very unique groove that just feels, it feels weirdly at home in the Twilight Zone, but also separate from the Twilight Zone. Um, what I mean by that is that the note is Archie's way of publicly calling Tennyson out for uh, the things that bug Archie about him. And there's this sigh that Sullivan gives when he unfolds the note as Tennyson. It's subtle, but I feel like it's Tennyson's way of registering his disappointment that his performance of sorts is over and that he won't be um, pitching the $250,000 loan tonight. Um, but it could also be read as reticence. Like, is he afraid? Like, I kind of wondered if he was afraid that Archie is going to public, publicly call him out or humiliate him. And I kind of wondered if Tennyson has the self-awareness to see that he is something of a con man. Like, it, is he so clear-minded that he knows that he's putting on this performance and he's doing these things so that he can get an, a ridiculously extravagant loan so that he can turn it around and and make money to support his home life, his expensive home life? Um and what is he afraid that Archie is going to kind of expose him? So 
We get Archie's whole proposition. Archie is betting Tennyson $500,000 that Tennyson cannot keep silent for one year. Tennyson will be sequestered for the year. He would be given anything he wants as diversion, uh, but he must not speak a single word in 12 months. And um, something I've been doing a lot on Obsessive Viewer in our Patreon feed um, is doing these these silly hypothetical questions with, with the co-host there. And, uh, I kind of wondered <laughs> while watching this episode, like, would I take the bet? Would I be able to do it? Uh, first of all, would I take it? Y- yeah, probably because it's $500,000 in 1961 times. That's like 4 million, I think. Um, judging by, uh, my research on, uh, wow, what was it? the prime mover? <laughs> but, uh, the question is, could I do it? And I don't know if I could or not. Um, it would be it would be an interesting uh experiment if anyone has like four million dollars they want to offer me like i'll i'll do it i don't you know i'll try it but it's i yeah i'll I'll get to that i'll get to more about uh today's technology and everything and how it could facilitate this type of bet um later in this episode so at this point when the kind of Cards are laid on the table. I was wondering if the episode was going to be about solitude or narcissism. Um, and it turns out it's kind of a battle of egos between Archie and Tennyson. And it's set up and carried through so wonderfully. Like, it's their pride. It's Their pride is at stake for both men. By the way, it is storming here in Indianapolis, or it's raining heavily here in Indianapolis, so if you hear that noise in the background, that's that's what it is. I don't think it's picking up. But anyway, Archie's demeanor toward Tennyson, toward Den- Tennyson in this scene where... Um, uh, like, where he's kind of explaining what's going on is just... His demeanor is so adversarial. Like, he's 100% like the villain of this thing. And... All the while, Tennyson is just processing what it all means. Like he's more cons- he's more concerned with his status within the club, and he tells Archie that it's Archie's business to inform everyone about the wager, but he will make himself highly suspect when he does. That's a little bit earlier, but you know, whatever. Uh, so Archie kind of tells him why he's doing this. Also, so here is a clip of Archie uh, describing why he is uh, pitching this bet to Tennyson. May I ask, what is the reason for this wager? What I'm about to say might horrify the average person, but to someone as insensitive as you, it probably won't mean a thing. I dislike you intensely, Tennyson. It goes much beyond the ordinary distaste I feel for someone without breeding, without principles, without manners. Your voice has become intolerable. I sit here each night and the sound of it makes me wince. I cannot ask you to resign from the club. I haven't got that right. So it occurred to me that I'd be willing to offer a large sum of money just to have some quiet. You see, Tennyson, you could not possibly remain silent for a year. It's not in your nature. You're a shallow, talkative, empty-headed ne'er-do-well. And to remain silent would destroy you. So I really love this scene and this whole monologue. Like, Tone's performance here is just wonderful, and it's a great mirror to Tennyson's monologue earlier. Um, Again, the writing is just stupendous. Um, As Archie is 
laying everything out about what he dislikes about Tennyson, he gives his own performance for the room, similar to how Tennyson was giving his own performance to get to the loan. Um, and it's just, Archie is just really making a show of it, um, completely publicly shaming Tennyson as he looks around the room with smug satisfaction throughout, like throughout it. Like he's just like, he's putting on such a great performance, both the actor and uh, Archie in the scene are both putting on great performances. Um, and he's just so just sniveling. And he's, he's honestly, I think at this point in the twilight zone, I'm two seasons deep, uh, just shy of two seasons deep. I really think that Archie is, uh, I really think that Archie Taylor is one of the best, uh, definitely one of the best, um, antagonists I've seen in this episode or in this season in the series um, uh, up to this point. So the reaction shots of Tennyson uh, as Archie's just like destroying him, uh, like Tennyson's looking aghast and horrified. It kind of brings Archie's monologue home and brings everything kind of uh, all together. And so, yeah, so Archie uh, launches into his expectations. He thinks that Tennyson will withstand it for three or four weeks, uh, maybe a couple of we- a couple of months, but then he'll succumb because it's in his nature. And uh, it's just, man, this is so, like, I love the writing here. So Tennyson shows interest, and Archie further drags him down. And I'm, I'm going to play a clip here of Archie just continuing to tear Tennyson apart. <laughs> well, Tennyson... Does it appeal to your sporting blood? Hardly enough, it does appeal to my sporting blood. Now that, too, is patently ridiculous. There's nothing sporting about you, Tennyson. I happen to know that you're delivering your nightly financial falderaw because you're in desperate straits. You've run through your inheritance. Your debts are insurmountable. And you do practically anything for money. Except, perhaps, to remain silent for a year. And I, I love Tennyson's reaction, um, saying that, like, he's basically saying, like, if we were in a different setting, like, uh, I would take you outside. And since the, but since the etiquette of the club is above that, he's going to just call Archie's bluff and take the wager. Um, so it's further explained that he's going to be in a, in a glass enclosed room, uh, downstairs where he'll be observed and there will be microphones everywhere. And so, yeah, he'll just be, um, there for a year without speaking. And then Tennyson asks for a check that's certified and witnessed by everyone in the room. Um, but Archie is not having it. He's just like, my credit's good basically. And it's just so like Tennyson has to take him at his word at this point. And he says like, it's my courage against your credit. And this is all just so deviously complex like Archie is so certain that Tennyson won't pull it off yet Tennyson is so desperate for money as we'll see here in a couple of scenes um that he's willing to take this bet and do um something horrible to himself to win the bet to get the money like it's just so like I said deviously complex and and interesting so Actually, the next scene is Tennyson explaining, I think he's explaining it to Franklin, that he has a wife with expensive tastes. And this is this is really my biggest gripe with the episode. It's just kind of not a... It, for an episode that has such strong writing and, and uh, expository dialogue and, and just setting up, setting up its rules within the confines of the episode, 
it's not a very strong way to establish why Tennyson is so desperate for the money. Like, I wish there was something more substantial that was motivating him to take the wager. Like, off the top of my head, I think it could have been more compelling if Tennyson was more clearly set up as a failure in their society. And maybe he sunk more money into a business, into businesses that, than he needed to and that they failed and, he has to, maybe he's become insecure with how he's viewed in this, in his social circles. And maybe that's what's propelling him for that. Um, I like, that's just off the top of my head and it's more, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's, it's hard to kind of armchair write an episode of the freaking twilight zone, but I just feel like, I feel like something was missing, um, just a little bit. Um, here. However, I will play devil's advocate and maybe Archie is right and Tennyson is a shally, er, shally, what? Shally, Jesus. Um, time is 202. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, he says that maybe, t- maybe Archie's right and Tennyson is a shallow, empty headed ne'er do well and deep down Tennyson knows that. Um, I think maybe the character of Tennyson just wants to be accepted. And that's why he lets his wife walk all over him and abuse his money. And he isn't given any respect at home. And now the whispers of disrespect in the social club are coming out, um, are coming out as they're being yelled in his face. Like, I feel like maybe there's a deeper story here that Tennyson is insecure about his status within the social club. And those whispers are coming out, you know, in full, full gale winds of, of yelling from Archie. So maybe he wants to prove Archie wrong as a means of gaining more power and respect among their peers and kind of, uh, you know, exposing Archie the way that, the way that Archie has exposed him publicly. So that's my, I don't know. It's just the motivation for it. Like the whole thing about the wife is, is just a little bit, uh, not to my, not to my liking really. So we get kind of a time jump, but there's, it's been nine weeks and Tennyson has been good with it. Uh, surprising Archie, uh, and making him starting to be a little nervous. Um, Frankie says that Tennyson didn't have much of an appetite at the beginning, which is such a great seed for the twist. Like he was recovering from a procedure and that's why he wasn't, uh, he didn't have much of an appetite or anything. I just, I, I love that as just like, not, I would, I wouldn't say it's a throwaway line, but I just love that that's, um, just a breadcrumb for later in the episode. No pun intended since they're talking about his appetite. So yeah, so Tennyson sits down to eat and after Franklin has given him his food, and it makes me think of the scenes at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which obviously wouldn't be made until much later that decade. And just the way it's, just the way it's, the way it looks, like I kind of wonder if Kubrick maybe drew inspiration from it. Like that's a, that's a crazy long shot. Um, but it just, like the imagery looks very similar to me. And by the way, Space Odyssey by Michael Benson is a really good and thorough book about the making of 2001. Um, highly recommend it. I'll put a, a, an Amazon affiliate link in the show notes, which can be found at anthologypod.com slash 058. So after this, we get a montage. Uh, time is passing. Uh, August, September, October. He is four and a half months in and hasn't made a sound. Um, and this is where I'm going to kind of just, I don't know, uh theorize about my own um ability to to do this kind of thing um i kind of feel like this bet i kind of feel like this bet would be kind of a cakewalk with today's technology like we have so much information at our fingertips that we don't really need social interaction the way that um 
I should say verbal social inter- interaction the way that people would have in uh in like the 50s and 60s when we didn't have uh I mean not we because I wasn't alive but um where people didn't have social media and, and like like the technology we have today. Uh my concern with this though if I were to be in a position like Tennyson where I am in in an enclosed space and I can't speak a word for 12 months my concern would be that I would accidentally speak. Um so I live alone with my cat and I, I'm, it's a small apartment, not much bigger than what is, uh, shown in Tennyson's little place. Like that, you know, that podcast money is, is not rolling in the way that I hoped it would. Um, but, by the way, go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Um, anyway, uh, my concern would be that I would accidentally speak because like living with my cat and everything, I'm constantly saying stuff out loud just on reflex, like an idiot. Um, and I kind of feel like I would just, I don't know. I feel like I would be, I would just mutter something and then lose the bet. So anyway, we get a scene where Alfred is questioning whether Archie has the 500,000 or not. And that was just a really tense scene for me because it's, it's kind of, I don't know if I would say laying it on thick, but it's like, it's, it's setting up the fact that like, Archie doesn't have that money. And in retrospect or in hindsight, it, you know, it's kind of clear like, Oh, that's where we're headed with this story. Like it's going to end poorly for, for Tennyson, um, and poorly for Archie. Uh, no pun in pun intended there. I'll go ahead and own up to that. So, but another thing I like about it is that I like that Archie has someone embodying some form of a conscience or a voice of reason. Um, like Alfred knows and suspects that Archie doesn't have the money. So he is doing what he can to kind of, pull Archie away from this ridiculous bet that he has created for Tennyson. And like this kind of, for lack of a better word, this big dick measuring contest um, is just getting out of hand. And Alfred knows that and he's trying to talk Archie out of it. So more time passes. We're in March. Archie speaks to Tennyson and good God, um, Archie offers him a thousand dollars to call it off. And Liam's physical work here, Liam Sullivan, his physical work here is just pretty pretty good uh the facial expressions are good and there's a good back and forth between between the two actors here and i want to pinpoint or highlight the wardrobe in this episode it does a really good job of concealing the throat of tennyson in a way that doesn't call attention to it like when we get to the to the reveal at the end like that blew my mind (laughs) um and i just hadn't expected it um I just felt like the the kind of wardrobe and, and set design and everything for um Liam, Liam Sullivan was really worked well to conceal, uh, the big, the big reveal. So Tennyson's like, nope, I'm not gonna, I'm like, he's, he's not having it. He's not accepting the bait of the thousand dollars. Like I can't imagine, like just the audacity of Archie to offer him a thousand dollars when he is more than, let's see, that's March. I mean, he's like 10 months into it. nine months i don't know um anyway (laughs) it is now 209 (laughs) um so anyway uh archie starts playing dirty and this is where the the thing with tennyson's wife um kind of kind of feels okay i guess it kind of comes back around so archie is telling tennyson about how his wife is getting lonely it's springtime um and she's probably getting lonely. He's seen her with, with several guys and everything. And I don't know. So 
I'm kind of back and forth with this because I, I wish that the wife was a character. Like the temptation and turmoil that Tennyson is being put through would be better for me if we had met the wife beforehand, I think. Um, I don't think the, I don't think it's really doing enough good to have them just talk about the wife and instead of, you know, showing something there. Like the only, the only information we have is that she is kind of a gold digger and Tennyson is madly in love with her. And all that's just told to us. And I think that's my big gripe about it is that it's not shown to us. It's told to us. Uh, for an episode that has such strong writing, it's, it, that's where it falters for me. Having said that, I have no idea how the wife could be introduced organically, uh, within the, within the allotted runtime. Like this is a very tight script and I can understand why the, the wife isn't a character or anything. It's just from a writing standpoint, it didn't really uh, work for me. So we get another montage and Archie keeps telling Tennyson that his wife is having affairs and that's cross cut with Sullivan's face in just total anguish. And, uh, maybe not total anguish. Maybe that's too strong a word, but he's just, it's like he's fighting the temptation. I guess he's not really fighting the temptation because he literally can't talk, but like he's, he's just internalizing that anger. And I really, I really like that Archie mentions that he saw Mrs. Tennyson getting into an expensive car with a man. Cause that just really sells like the insecurities of Tennyson. Like that, that really like sticks a dagger deeper into Tennyson's insecurities. Uh, just the imagery or the, the thought of his wife parading around town with a man who can provide her with the extravagant w- riches that he is submitting himself to this hell to provide for her. Um, just, there's some layers to that, uh, to that kind of torture that is, uh, really appealing to me. And so we go to April Fool's Day and Archie's still taunting him and he's hitting it hard <laughs> and it's clearly getting to Tennyson. And Ar- Archie at this point offers 5000 or uh $5,000 and then $6,000. And Tennyson is, uh, but Tennyson is not going, going to fold. Um, at that point, he kind of like, he presses his hand against a glass. It's not, it's kind of out of anger and everything kind of as his way of telling Archie to stop. Um, but he's not going to, not going to fold regardless. And I like that this is driving Archie nuts. <laughs> like he claims that it's driving Tennyson insane, but he himself is the one that's, you know, he's, he's really, um, shocked that this is happening. Like Archie does not, did not believe that Tennyson could pull this off. And it's clear at this point that he is likely going to pull it off. So Archie is, is having his own mental, like, uh, nerves and everything firing off about about this so we're back at the kind of social club we're upstairs now and we have two minutes to go and alfred tells archie that 12 months ago you destroyed yourself and um i'm i'm yeah okay so so alfred's telling archie that that he destroyed himself um and everything but i want to point out so in the background as alfred is talking over his left shoulder, there's a statue that looks kind of like the thinker, only his hand isn't on his chin. It's just kind of like his, his arms are outstretched in front of his, uh, in front of his torso and kind of, um, he's kind of squatting and his, his arms are kind of, his arms are outstretched over his thighs. So I'm going to go full on like room 237 conspiracy theory here, um, which is interesting because this is my second Kubrick reference, reference this episode. But so the way, I don't know. So, so the way the statue's hands are situated, 
and I, I don't know, it kind of looks like it's holding its penis. Um, it's interesting since as kind of reductive as it might be, this episode is, like I said, one big dick measuring contest contest between these two men. Um, I'll put a, I'll put a screenshot in the show notes of this episode. Um, so you guys can see this, but it kind of just looks that way. I have no idea if that's intentional or if I'm just looking way too deep into, into this. Cause it's not something that, um, I feel is, is really has been really evident throughout these two seasons of the show, but it's just, it's in, in an interesting counter to the kind of theme of the episode. So anyway, um, yeah. So, uh, Alfred is kind of giving Archie kind of a, kind of a tongue lashing about Tennyson's, uh, the, about ten, the way he's treated Tennyson. I'm going to go ahead and play a clip here because, um, I have another point that I'm going to break, uh, bring up. So here is Alfred, um, talking to Archie. Twelve months ago to the moment you destroyed yourself, much as I told you you would. Your little reminders are gratuitous, Alfred. Besides, it's not yet ten o'clock. Whether it is or whether it isn't, the destruction I'm talking about has already taken place. There have been ugly rumors, Archie, things you've done to him, like little asides, innuendos, suggestions, gossip about his wife. You place such a premium on honor, Archie, but you haven't acted like an honorable man. Please don't go to the trouble of denying it. I'm sure much of it is true. But the ugly affair has proved two things, hasn't it, Archie? That that boy down there is stronger than you gave him credit for, and you are considerably weaker. And so the way the episode is structured is really interesting to me because I feel like Alfred's encounter with Archie is the final of three different monologues we get through this, through the episode. And I don't know, maybe that's a stretch. Maybe I'm looking, reading too much into it. Like, I don't know if there's really a correlation, uh, from Alfred's monologue to Archie to, uh, if there's a correlation from that monologue to the other two earlier in this episode with Archie and, uh, Tennyson, but um, I just thought it was an interesting kind of balance to it. Like we get three, um, three men delivering three monologues throughout this episode, each kind of like the first two kind of demonstrating the character of each man uh, of each man. And then the third one is um, kind of bringing up a mirror to the absurdity of this whole thing and the villainy of Archie as a character. I don't know that maybe I, maybe I was reading too much into it, but let me know if you thought the same. So, so the episode as a whole kind of seems to be about the facade of power or strength and what it means to be in control. And that's a bit oversimplifying and maybe missing the real point, but, um, it's demonstrated well in Alfred's monologue, especially when it says that boy down there is stronger than you give you gave him credit for and you are considerably weaker. And I like that this is the first we see of Archie's kind of facade slipping. Like he doesn't understand how Tennyson did it. Um but he is kind of shaken up over it. And I feel like Archie or I'm sorry, Alfred telling art like kind of laying it out flat to Archie the way that Archie did to Tennyson early in the episode is just bringing everything home to Archie, like how everything is going to uh, be changed when, when Tennyson comes, comes up. And with that time's up, Tennyson emerges, the crowd claps and applause, applauds him. And so Tennyson approaches Archie and 
like the the tension there uh is so kind of palpable and he puts his hand out and this is where the episode kind of comes crashing down like like the where the story like reaches its its big climax archie says you have me at a disadvantage mr tennyson um and just right there, like him referring to him as Mr. Tennyson, I don't, is there something to him referring to him as, as such? Like, is that subtly showing him respect? Whereas early in the episode, he had no respect for him. I kind of, I kind of think I, of the wildly, um, far-fetched things that I, um, have posited in this review, I feel like this is the one that has the most chance of being intentional or right on the money. So, um, Archie says that he's in a rather compromising situation and he says, you forced me into a position of rather distasteful candor. Um, and it's interesting. Like I, that's an interesting phrasing. Um, I kind of take it to mean that he's blaming Tennyson for calling his bluff and it's just kind of pinpointing the arrogance of Archie as a character. And again, he is such a great, just antagonistic character and French hot tones performance. It, Honestly, it may be a top five performance for me, at least in the first two seasons of The Twilight Zone, obviously. Um, and to go back to his uh, monologue in the opening of the episode, um, just like the the smirk that he gives when he says that um, when he says that he's like the point of the rate wager is that he's going to get uh, some peace and quiet uh, for as long as Tennyson can last. Like it's just so antagonistic and adversarial. It's it's great. Um, so Archie kind of comes clean and he says he's a fraud and he has lost all of his money. He's lost it long ago. And he says he would have had to, he even would have had to beg for the $1,000 or $5,000 that he offered Tennyson earlier, earlier in the episode. And it's, I, I love his, I'm going to play a clip here of him saying that. So here's a clip there. The truth is I am a fraud. I haven't any money. I offered you $1,000 then $5,000. I would have had to go out into the street to beg even that amount, let alone a half a million dollars. And I love how shocked he is, or like he's so shocked at the at this turn of events that he can't even say the word dollars. It's just like that kind of um, subtlety to his to his performances is really great. And at at this point in my first viewing notes, I have Jesus. This may be incredible. Um, so Archie concedes that he has pride, but Tennyson may be the more sus- substantial person. And it's just, it's so it's it, at this moment before the reveal, it's just so interesting to see Archie taken down like several pegs and he's coming to terms with like, okay, this is, you know, he lost. It's, it's just, he's, he lost this, this, uh, wager and it's, eating him up because this I'm kind of taking it to mean that this kind of social club and the social status that they enjoy is a big part of their life. (laughs) And it's what they kind of live for. At least Archie does. So, uh, Tennyson writes a note. (laughs) And at this point, at this point, I kind of thought I didn't, I wasn't clued into the fact that he couldn't talk. Um, cause I thought like, I kept thinking like, well, you know, after a year of being silent, like his vocal cords are going to be kind of atrophied. So clearly he's not going to be able to, able to speak for a little bit. Um, but he's writing the note, he's crying. And then, uh, Archie reads the note. It says, I knew I would not be able to keep my part of the bargain. So one year ago I had the nerves to my vocal cords severed. And like, I, if, 
Okay, so I take my notes while I watch the f- watch the episode for the first time, and then subsequent viewings, I I expand on those notes for the podcast. And my first viewing notes is like the closest I can like it's it's basically a celebratory cheer. It's like the note taking equivalent of a standing ovation. I put fucking a that's a good surprise, um, all caps and everything, and 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 exclamation points. And I just I love it. I I love that ending so much. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and go into my, my thoughts about it. So, um, well, okay, let me go ahead and play Serling's closing narration here. So here's Serling kind of closing the, closing the book on this episode of The Twilight Zone. Mr. Jamie Tennyson, who almost won a bet, but who discovered somewhat belatedly that gambling can be a most unproductive pursuit, even with loaded dice marked cards, or as in his case, some severed vocal cords. For somewhere beyond him, a wheel was turned, and his number came up black 13. If you don't believe it, ask the croupier, the very special one who handled roulette in the Twilight Zone. So, I love this episode. I really do. Um, the whole surprise at the end that Tennyson had his vocal cords severed so that he could win the bet is just such a great way to wrap up this episode, and... It's just so fascinating that Archie and Tennyson are, they're on the same level, really. That's my read of the ending. Like they, like Archie is this, um, really antagonistic kind of bitter man who wanted to flaunt his power within the social club that they're in and take down this, this obnoxiously, um, annoying person in the club. And by doing that, the op, the, uh, obnoxious, annoying person in the club, uh, called his bluff because he publicly humiliated him and he wanted to take down this adversarial person in his life. Uh, but in order to do that, he had to irrevocably or, uh, irredeemably change himself, um, so that he could get that. And again, $500,000, that's a lot of money, especially for 1961. And I mean, that's enough for him to live off of. Um, Although since his wife, I, I don't know if he'd be able to live off of it, but, um, but still it's something that would be life changing for him. And so that necessitated a, uh, not necessarily a cheat, but a loophole that would be, that would change his life, um, negatively. So I don't know. It's just, there's something to that about the two men going after each other and both coming out as the loser. Like I, I love that dynamic and I love the way that it was demonstrated in this, uh, in this episode and, and through this story, I, I really, really loved it. Um, so I think that that's all I have for the silence. A great, great episode. Really enjoyed it. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I really liked this episode. So trivia for the silence. So Franchot tone, um, according to IMDb, uh, filmed the sequences, the club sequences in the early part of production. But then after that, he had some kind of facial injury. So there's conflicting, conflicting reports. So, uh, Liam Sullivan, who played Tennyson said that he, uh, like according to the trivia says that, uh, Frenchot had fallen off a terrace to a driveway while picking a flower for a girlfriend. Whereas Rod Serling says that, uh, that it was actually a jealous romantic rival that had attacked him. Um, so that's kind of interesting. I don't know what it was, but 
Anyway, uh, that left French Hot Tone's uh, face, left side of his face, swollen significantly. Um, so it was decided not to hire a different actor and reshoot the previous film scene, previously filmed scenes, which I'm very thankful for because, like I said, this was a great performance by French Hot Tone. Um, so instead, what they did was that they filmed him only with his right side exposed to the camera. So if you look, particularly in the scenes where he's mocking Sullivan or mocking Tennyson, um, he is just like kind of in profile. He's just, he's like, we're only seeing one side of his face. Um, it's just, it's really effective. I, I really liked it. So good job to whoever, uh, roughed him up <laughs> or whatever happened. So, uh, this episode is inspired somewhat by a short story titled The Bet by Anton Chekhov. Um, so yeah, uh, I think, yeah, I think it's basically, oh, uh, the, that story is about, um, a bet where someone can go, I believe it's also a year, um, with having no direct human contact, I think. So that's interesting. Uh, another piece of trivia is that this is one of four episodes of the Twilight Zone that notably contains no science fiction or fantasy elements. And I was trying to figure out if I have reviewed any that um, have no science fiction or fantasy elements to them. Off the top of my head and, and looking through the episode list, I don't know that I have. I think this might be the first one, but I have a suspicion that coming up in a month or two, um, when I review The Shelter, I feel like that episode doesn't have any um, particular science fiction or fantasy elements. I think that might be the next one, but we'll see. Um, this episode was also referenced in uh, Richard Linklater's, I think, 2016 movie, Everybody Wants Some. Um, I'm kind of picking the bottom of the barrel for <laughs> for these trivia uh, bits. Um, I haven't seen Everybody Wants Some, but that makes me kind of intrigued to see it. Um, Boris Segel was originally, well, obviously he's the director of this episode. Uh, he was originally slated to direct Nick of Time earlier in the season, but a scheduling conflict caused him to back out. So, um, this was his first episode of the Twilight Zone. So that's pretty interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with the arrival. Okay, so that'll do it for my review of The Silence. Like I said, great episode, really loved it. Let me know what you guys thought of the episode, and uh, I'd be very interested to hear if anyone uh, liked it as much as I did or were put off by the fact that there was no kind of supernatural or fantasy or science fiction element to it. Uh, let me know what you think. You know where to find me. Of course, I'm going to end this episode with a brief, spoiler-free review of an episode of Science Fiction Theater. So this episode is from Season 1. It's Episode 7, The Brain of John Emerson. It uh, originally aired on May 21st, 1955, and it is available in its entirety on YouTube. I have put a link in the show notes for you to watch it, so feel free uh, to check that out. Uh, so the uh, okay, so the pre-show, uh, Truman Bradley does these pre-show bits where he introduces the concept of the episode. So in this one, he talks about um, he he says, "quote The story we are going to show you has something to do with a machine that has a memory." Um, which, like, that alone is kind of, I don't know, it's cute for 1955. Um, and that kind of goes um, further in that he is demonstrating this robotic mouse that has um, a learned, th- that he's learned the root of a maze. And by learned, it's just that they've, basically they've attached this um, kind of robot mouse um, to a big-ass, like, 
computer thing. And as it's going through this maze on the table, it is learning the route. Um, and the, that route is being fed into the, um, into the machine and the machine is quote unquote learning it so that the mouse, uh, goes through the maze perfectly on the second time. And like, it's just, it's, it's interesting because like just by today's standards, that's just kind of basic kind of programming and everything. Um, and it's kind of, like I said, it's kind of cute to watch that in, in 2019. So Truman Bradley kind of ends on an ominous tone where he says, will machines ever replace the brains of men? And that brings us into this episode, which is again, it's titled the brain of John Emerson. And the synopsis is a policeman is recovering from brain surgery. His surgeon was a renowned neuroscientist who has died in his IQ uh, and the policeman's IQ has mysteriously increased. Um, and I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. So I'm, cause I'm not going to go into spoilers. So this episode of science fiction theater was directed by Leslie Goodwins. This was their only episode of the science fiction theater. It was written by Hendrik Volartz. Uh, this is his first of four science fiction theater episodes. He does have a story credit on one episode of one step beyond, and he was the credited writer on one episode of star Trek, the original series. This episode stars John Howard, who we previously saw play Dr. Novak in no food for thought and Ellen drew who also, uh, appeared in an earlier episode as Helen Gunderman in the premiere episode, the series premiere episode beyond. So, um, yeah, I'll just kind of, like I said, it's going to be a brief review and the time is two twenty nine, So I'm really tired. So, uh, the episode starts with the detective that's in, that's in a hospital bed and the narration says that he had multiple gunshot wounds to the head, but, um, kind of later on, it's said that he was shot once in the head. Uh, but that immediately made me think of Robocop. Like, are they going to, uh, just make a robotic man out of him? Uh, that's not really what happened. So, um, he's released from the hospital after recovering, after having, after being in a coma for a while. And he goes home to be with his, um, I don't know if they really establish it as his wife. I think it's a girlfriend. Um, and it's revealed in dialogue that the doctor who saved his life actually died after the, after the operation before he recovered. And I thought for a second, I really thought that this was going to go into a really absurd route that, is basically like, oh, they put his brain in, like it was a brain transplant. But that's not, again, that's not where it headed. Um, but John Emerson, the detective, is now a genius after the surgery. And that reminded me a little bit of the John Travolta movie from like the 90s called Phenomenon. But anyway, um, he knows things that he shouldn't. He does a test. He goes for a test for a promotion and aces it in the... Uh, his superior uh, tells him that, like, you know, we measure your IQ when we take these tests, and it's 170-something when it was, like, 113 before. Um, so he kind of, that that propels the main character, John, into kind of researching what's what's going on, like, what is going on with him. And he ends up going to see the doctor's office just to see, you know, how things are, or, like, if anything, if he, there's, if there are any answers. Uh, if there are any answers in here, I thought it was funny because I won't reveal what he finds and everything, obviously, but, um, he, re- he finds out that the doctor was doing some, um, interesting experiments and tests and everything. And there's, there's a scene where a character, I think it's, it's another scientist character, a, a doctor character tells, tells John, um, 
that, uh, that the doctor believed that we only used like 5% of our brain. So it's interesting to see like that concept being done in such an early, uh, science fiction, um, story. But, um, the, the act break ends on a really funny line to me. Like John says, why can't his research go on? And the assistant or the doctor who is with him says, because we don't have his brain. And then, you know, dramatic end to the act there. I thought that was just a funny kind of, uh, interesting line. So, so it's revealed more and more that John knows more things that honestly only doctor, only Dr. Turner is his name. Only the doctor knew like, and could possibly know, like he finds a spare key to the house, to, to the doctor's house. Um, he knows a mouse's name that is, uh, used for tests that Dr. Turner used. Um, he also knew that he, that Dr. Turner had been experimenting on dogs and cats and okay. So he's in, he's in the, uh, a lab. He's led to a lab by the widow of the doctor. And he mentions like there, there are dogs and cats in cages. And he mentions that, uh, that Dr. Turner transferred certain behavioral elements from a dog to a cat. And then he says, now the natural enemies are friends. Um, I just, I just thought that was really funny. To, I, I thought it was again, kind of cute and funny. Um, and then we get this interesting thing that's, it's not a big plot point in the episode, but it is kind of terrifying in a weird way. Um, the, he is explaining what Dr. Turner's long-term goals of the experiments that he was doing are, like transferring, transferring like thoughts and, and minds to, to different people. Um, and he says, uh, like transferring the minds of great statesmen and religious leaders. And it, it like, he goes and he lists a few other people, like types of people so that they could transfer the ideas instantly into other people's minds. Like that is freaking terrifying to me. Like that's an episode, that's a science fiction scenario in its own right, but it's played off as like, this is, this is what the end goal is. And let's, let's, continue his work or what, whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know, but another thing, something that I found and I'll wrap up soon, because if I go any further, it'll just go in, go into spoilers. But something that I found interesting about the show in this episode is the way that it presents science fiction as kind of complex scientific fact. What I mean by that is, and I don't know if this is intentional or if the show is just dating itself to 1955, but one of the doctors in this episode refers to ESP as if it were to totally normal. Like he says something like, Oh, we used to think, we used to think that, um, we used to think one way about something and then now we call it ESP. Um, and then he likens the thought of transference to witchcraft and says like, now we call it, I, uh, now we use a atomic energy for it. And I just think, that's interesting that if the intention was that like, oh, it's normalizing these high concept, uh, um, science fiction things, like that's pretty cool. Like <laughs> I like that. But also if it's just like, maybe that's just 1955, like maybe that's just 1955. So uh, the episode as a whole is kind of, I don't want to say dull because I could just easily just kind of write off some of these episodes as just boring and be done with it. But, and I, and I wouldn't say that anyway, cause I think the concepts are interesting and the performances are fairly good. But 
I do want to say that it was kind of an underwhelming ending for me, but it's still like the episode as a whole is still kind of an interesting ode to science and the importance of scientific research. It's it goes back to what I said last time or one of the last times I reviewed an episode of science fiction theater um, that this episode that this the concept of this series like the idea of this series could be you know transplanted to modern day. I I think it would be really great as kind of um a love letter to science through the prism of science fiction um, storytelling. Like why, why doesn't someone pitch this to like Netflix or something like get Bill Nye to, you know, host it. That would be cool. That'd be great. He could be like a good Truman Bradley um, or Rod Serling presence for that matter. Um, so yeah, so that does it for this episode of um, or my review of, the brain of John Emerson. Pretty solid episode. I, I check it out on YouTube. It's like 25 minutes. Um, it's not bad. I'm, I'm still enjoying doing the science fiction theater, um, bonus reviews, uh, pairing it with that. Let me know what you guys think, um, about it. Are you guys watching these episodes? I don't know. So anyway, uh, you know how to contact me and everything next time on the podcast. So I have one more bonus episode, uh, reviewing the season finale of the 2019 Twilight Zone series reboot from Monkey Paw Productions. Uh, so that should come up, uh, probably mid, mid next week. So like Wednesday, you should probably see it, uh, hit the feed. And then soon after that, I'm going to have Tiny on to review the season as a whole. And then, yeah, uh, those are the bonus episodes coming. Um, the next main episode, this is a special one. So I'm reviewing Shadow Play, uh, episode 25, 26. This was episode 25, I think. Yeah, episode 26 of, uh, season two of The Twilight Zone. But I'm also going to be reviewing the 1985, uh, remake from the, uh, 1985 Twilight Zone reboot. Uh, so, two shadow plays. Uh, so I'm going to be foregoing the science fiction theater review for a week, but it's all in good fun because I'm going to get to dip my toes into the 1985 series. So I'm excited for that. Um, like I said, in my bonus episode reviewing, um, the blue scorpion, I'm really excited because I think what I'm going to do for the concept of this shadow play, uh, review is that I'm going to, I haven't, I haven't watched the original series episode yet. I haven't watched any of them yet. Um, so I'm going to watch shadow play, make my notes. I'm going to record that review separately. Um, and then once I finish recording that episode, that's when I'm going to watch the remake. So I feel like that's going to be an interesting kind of way to, to do the, um, remake reviews and everything because I'm going to be doing it in a vacuum. Like you'll get to hear just my thoughts on shadow play, the original, that way I can kind of devote my attention to just talking about the work of the original series and not have it be kind of nagging at me that like, Oh, the remake did it this way or the remake did this. And so I think that'll be a better kind of review for, for you guys too. So, um, look for that next week and yeah, that'll do it for this episode of anthology. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and supporting me and everything. And let me know what you thought. Uh, you know where to find me. You'll hear all of my info in the closing, um, uh, pre or pre-recorded outro. It is two thirty-nine, by the way, guys. I'm super tired, uh, but I might try to watch Shadow Play. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. And now here's a clip from a recent episode of the Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast from ObsessiveViewer.com.
an official capacity. In an official capacity. Yeah. That's, that's what was actually oh, yeah. cool about it. Yeah. And I think that that's what makes it so interesting is that, especially with Chernobyl, because Chernobyl was one of those cultural, um, uh, cultural, like, not, uh, cultural touch points for, like, the conversation surrounding, like, media for the five weeks it was there. Like, everyone on social media was talking about Chernobyl. Right. And I just love that everyone, in addition to having that, like, having that conversation just on social media, has this podcast to inform them and, and like, uh, to inform them and also kind of make the kind of uh, cultural conversation a lot more informed. Yeah. Um, and another thing I really liked about the podcast was that he... Uh, pointed out like where he took like artistic license and like why he took artistic license here and there and everything. Yeah. Uh, just it's just it's so great. I really hope that they do it too. Yeah. Even if it puts us out of business. Um, <laughs> so. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com/archive. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at Facebook.com slash As Good As It Gets Band. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.